All right. Um, today is going to be uh, spent on Martin Luther. Uh, this is going to be at least part one, uh, if not part two uh, or part three upcoming. Hopefully we can get through it um, somewhat quickly, but he's such a pivotal figure in the church. He probably, um, especially for us, deserves at least a, a couple of weeks um, Everyone knows who Martin Luther is, so what we're going to try and do is kind of fill in the gaps of, of his life, hopefully some things that you might not have known, um, and what's more, kind of give um, an understanding of how God worked in him to bring about the Reformation. He, he was, um, I think, specifically chosen by God. He had um, the right bits of personality that somebody probably needs to, to do what he did. Um, those bits are not always awesome when not pointed in the right directions. Um, and he, Martin was not always pointed in the right direction. Um, and uh, so, but he is a pivotal figure in, and hopefully we will learn much about how God has worked today. Um, Luther was born in 1483 in um, Eiselben, Germany, um, which is actually in the Holy Roman Empire. So um, we think of him as German, but he was born under the auspices of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, his father was named Hans. Hans was a pretty successful bloke in his own right. Um, he owned a couple of uh, factories. He owned some mines, um, but he wanted that, that put him kind of firmly in the middle class, but he wanted better things for his, his kids and specifically Martin. Martin was his oldest boy. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was his oldest boy. And so he was going to dump a lot of effort and a lot of energy into getting Martin where he needed to be. And so Martin was enrolled very quickly uh, as a, at a young age into basically boarding schools away from his parents. Um, what you're going to find is that Martin wasn't happy anywhere, um, and he certainly wasn't happy at these boarding schools. Um, Hans eventually wanted Luther to go into the law. He thought the law was the place where Luther could um, make the most of himself, uh, even from a young age, because through the law, you can then get into governmental positions, and governmental positions, you can, you can work your way up through those things. And so this was his idea. Um, he basically was taught what every young man at a boarding school is taught at that time, which is called the trivium, which is grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Um, this is pretty standard stuff since the time of, of Greece and Rome. Um, and you see a lot of that education coming through in Luther. He was taught grammar, which is important because he is going to be um, the first, basically, translator of the Bible into German, which is a translation which is still usable today. Luther is to German what uh, Shakespeare basically was for English. So, so many phrases and, and words were basically coined by Shakespeare in English. Uh, Luther does the exact same thing for German in his translation of the New Testament. Um, that translation is still used today. It's still a really good translation in German from what I understand. I'm not going to make it sound like I speak German because I don't. Um, but I know that it's still used today and it's, it's highly it basically changed the, the entirety of the language um, because people read it all the time and um, it changed the way they talked and everything. So he used grammar. The rhetoric and the logic would obviously come through as he, he had a lot of reasons to argue with people, uh, both because he was argumentative and because people picked him out to argue with. So um, he would end up using those things a lot. 
Um, even though they would be eventually very useful for him, he didn't like them. He called these schools purgatory and hell. Um, and, and you might realize that that is not meant to be taken positively. That is a negative comment. Um, by the time 1501 rolls around, he's graduated from boarding schools. He's enrolled at the University of Erfurt. Um, he doesn't like these places any better. If those were purgatory and hell, the University of Erfurt was nothing but a beer house and a whorehouse. Um, so uh, Luther, Luther is what we might call a spicy individual. Uh, he, he doesn't have very neutral language to describe anything. Um, and so he, he wasn't very fond of these places either. They had him do sort of rote spiritual work, which he found dull and stupid. Um, wasn't very happy with Erfurt at all. Nevertheless, by 1505, he graduates with a master's degree. Uh, at this point in time, January of 1505, he is set to enroll in law school. Um, he graduates in the spring, and he is traveling back home. Um, well, before we get there, he, he knew of the law, and he was educated in some parts of the law. Um, but during his time at Erfurt, what he, he found out was that the law wasn't his thing. So he, he didn't love it. He liked it well enough, but he didn't love it. What he really loved was philosophy and theology. Um, and he, he was really infatuated with two guys we've talked about kind of a lot. Um, last week, we talked about William of Ockham. Um, and, and William was one of the chief influences in Luther's life. Um, and Aristotle was the other person that Luther really sought to learn a lot from. Now, the interesting bit about both of those guys is that both of them have a completely different use of reason and logic when it comes to knowing God. Aristotle thought that God was nothing but logic and reason, and so you can look out at the world and you can see the things, the way things work and the way things are around you, and that you can use those things to reason your way up to God. And William of Ockham has completely the opposite take. William says, you can't reason your way to God at all. As a matter of fact, the only way you can know God is by the revelation that comes through Scripture. So w William didn't deny that you could have knowledge of God. Um, he just denied that, that reason and logic really had a role either in revealing God or even in the person of God. So William took that. So what William says sounds a lot like what we would say, and I think rightly up to a point, but William goes further than that and actually affirms that God is above logic and God is above reason so that he can do completely unreasonable things like things that don't make any sense and is, are, are in and of themselves illogical, but it's okay because he's God. God is above that. Well, that, that's a bit too much. So anyways, Luther, Luther finds out that he, he loves these things, um, but what he comes down on eventually is that he likes theology more than philosophy um, because he finds that in philosophy you can know things but theology is meant to teach you about love. Um, and so that was kind of what, what Luther drew a distinction between, at least somewhat, was that to pursue uh, a right way of handling yourself in the world was not enough simply to know things, but it was to have your heart guided directly towards things. And, and philosophy just didn't really do that. Philosophy was sort of, um, you know, obviously with, with Aristotle, Behind him, it was a lot of cold logic, and, and he didn't think that that was really the way it was. Nevertheless, although those two things, uh, and eventually, let me, let me be clear. So he sides with William of Ockham against Aristotle when it comes to the use of logic. 
which will become important later because Luther is going to be one of the first people who takes Aquinas to task for the way that he writes. And he will, again, throw the whore word out when he's talking about philosophers and especially Aristotle because he just thinks that Aristotle is so wrong about this. And Aquinas, Aquinas has like a man crush on Aristotle. There's really no other way to put it. He loves the guy. And, and Luther just he can't get past that. One of the reasons why he hates Aquinas is not even for the things that Aquinas says, it's for his infatuation with Aristotle. Um, Luther eventually turns against him and, and really dislikes uh, the idea that you can reason and logic your way to God. Um, even though it's clear by this time where his heart is, it's also clear that he is not backing off of his father's intentions. His father has called him to be a lawyer. His father wants him to be a lawyer. And so with, with as much zeal as he can probably um, pin together, he decides that he's going to enroll in law school. Um, in the beginning of July, he is actually traveling back. Um, on July 2nd, he's traveling back to, um, to his father's house in 1505 and a severe thunderstorm comes up and um, it was enough to kind of make him weary. I, I, I suppose that this is the case. It was a very strong storm. He is unprotected. He's riding on a horse at this time um, and he doesn't have a good place to find shelter. Um, there's a lot of lightning going on around him and one of those lightning bolts hits close enough to him that it actually blows him off of the horse. Um, so this isn't one of those situations where he was just, you know, I, I remember growing up in my house, my mom had a deathly fear of storms, which to her credit, I didn't even know until I got older because she refused to let us see her be scared. But I, I can't believe she did it because she is freaked out about storms. That wasn't what Luther was going through. He, he might have been freaked out about storms, but there was a bolt that hit close enough to him that literally launched him off the horse. And uh, so he falls to the ground and he is, he is petrified that this storm is a sign of God's wrath and judgment to come upon him. And so he, he's, he cries out and in, in the retelling of this, it seems like the words sort of left his mouth before he understood what he was even saying. So it's clearly a rash statement. He, he didn't have time to think through what he was saying, um, but he, he screams out to St. Anne. St. Anne was, um, I think, uh, through myth, um, thought to be Mary's mother. So this is Jesus's grandma. Um, he cries out to St. Anne. He says, St. Anne, save me. I'll be a monk. Um, which seems like a, a pretty weird thing to just kind of cry out. Uh, but he, he was probably, you know, any port in a storm kind of thing. And uh, so he thought this will be enough to, to make St. Saint Anne, Saint Anne happy enough to, uh, to then, like the communication's got to happen really quick. So he's, he's pretty sure that the lines of communication in, in heaven are pretty good. So he cries out to St. Anne. He's like, this will appease you. St. Anne then takes it to Jesus. Jesus then takes it to the Father. The Father then stops the storm and, and he's good. Well, um, he apparently doesn't just blow this off as a rash vow. This is something that Luther then looks at and says, I, I can't break this. He is deathly afraid of God's judgment. He feels as though God has spared him in judgment because he has said this. 
He's not going to back off the vow. Um, and so when um, I've read in a couple of places where they're like, well, this clearly showed that Luther wanted to go into the monastery because he, he gave this vow under, rash, under, under very difficult conditions, and it clearly shows that, that he could have nullified the vow. It was given under duress, and, and therefore he could have gotten out of it if he wanted to. And I'm like, the dude honestly thought that he was going to go to hell in that moment, and he, he was spared to go back on that means, you know, a lower circle of hell. Like, you're, you're now, you know, you're, you're, you're shunning the very salvation that God has given to you. I, I think that he went into the monastery against his will. Um, two weeks later, he goes into the monastery. It literally takes him two weeks. Um, his dad is incredibly upset. So he goes to his dad, and I imagine that this conversation uh, was just a fantastic one for him. Um, he, he, Luther was trying to explain the situation. He says that he, was, he was besieged by the terror and agony of sudden death, and uh, his father, in, in retort, only says this, let's hope it was not simply an illusion and a deception. So, in other words, uh, I've, I've wasted a good deal of money on you to be going into a monastery. You had better hope that you were spared and, and the idea, I think, is because I wouldn't have spared you. <laughs> like, like, this is not good. So eventually, there's this huge tension between the two. Luther's dad seems, in, in a lot of portrayals, to be a very harsh man. Um, they reconciled. Uh, he, he, he was obviously disappointed. And, and again, he had basically two weeks in between when Luther told him and when Luther leaves for the monastery. That's a hard thing to get your mind around in two weeks when you have dumped so much of your life and your savings into this boy to do this, and, and you're kind of pinning your hopes on him, and then he, he up and says, no, I'm going into a monastery. Um, we should be kind of gracious with him. He eventually does reconcile with his father, and, and they're okay. Um, two weeks later, uh, his friends have a, a farewell dinner for him, um, and again, it, it appears as though Luther is going into this with resignation, not with joy. He says, uh, you see me now, but after I enter these gates, you'll, you'll never see me again, is what he basically tells his friends, which again, super cheery note. Thanks, Martin. Um, but he goes into the monastery. He, he goes through the initial steps of being in the monastery, of learning, and, and eventually in September, he takes his confession, and he's fully enrolled. The monastery is Augustinian. Um, there's a number of, as we've, we've kind of we haven't talked too much about um, monasteries and things like that. There are different rules that you can follow. Uh, the most famous one is the Benedictine rule. Um, the Augustinian rule is, is not a formal rule. It's basically a, a bunch of um, kind of commands or ways of living that have been cobbled together from Augustine's writings about uh, his time living with the monks in a desert. Um, it's, not, it's not the harshest of them. They don't have to shun poverty. Uh, Augustine didn't think that, or not shun poverty. You don't have to embrace poverty. Augustine didn't think that that was the way to go, but he thought that you had to be incredibly generous. So it was fine for them to work to gain money, but Augustinian monks were expected to be exceptionally generous with their time and especially generous with their money and things like that. Um, while he is in this monastery for the first couple of years. Um, a man named von Stoppitz uh, is his confessor and his superior. Um, he has a good deal of control over Luther, and he seems to be, uh, although he, he steadfastly remains Roman Catholic to the end of his days, um, a very good man. And he seeks really, really to help Luther, because Luther has a lot of issues. Um, 
Luther wasn't just thinking about judgment when the thunderstorm came. Luther rarely could think of anything but judgment. He had a very, very sensitive soul, very sensitive spirit, and he was deathly afraid of God coming and judging him. And so he knew, right? So let's, let's, before we get into that, let's back up and, and say, what was it that the Roman Catholics held out as the way in which you were saved? Can anyone answer that? So when Roman Catholics talk about how you were going to be justified, what did that mean and how did you achieve that? So it was grace and works, right? Um, and why the works? Do you remember? Do you know? I don't, not like we talked about it in detail, but or does anybody? Why works? Isn't it like baptism takes away your original sin, but you've got to keep like, doing good things and confessing because you can be sinning all the time? Yeah. So you have to have faith because you've got to keep going to the church, but everything runs through the church. Okay, so what you've got is basically a huge bank that has all the money that you would ever need, but you don't have access to it unless you go through the tellers, okay? And if you go through the tellers, then the tellers will give you the money that they think you deserve for the things that you do. And this is what confession and the, basically the sacraments were for the church. You earned merit of Christ by doing these things. So you were saved by faith, because, and you're not saved by your work. We need to be really clear about this as far as what the Roman Catholics say. They don't think that you're saved by your work. It is the work you do, but it is the merit of Jesus that is given to you that actually saves you. Now, in practice, that is easily confused with the things that you do because Jesus isn't walking the aisle to get mass. You are doing that. Nevertheless, everything's done through the church. So in order for you to be forgiven sins, baptism is the first thing. It washes away your sins. You're, you're clean and perfect after that until you sin, and then you fall away from grace until you confess that sin, and then you come back into grace. So Luther is trapped in this, and the only way for him to get out is to confess right? So he's, he's doing these sins. He's still taking mass, and he's doing all the other stuff, but he's got to confess. And so von Stoppitz catches the worst of this. So Luther is coming before him and confessing things. He's confessing thoughts. He's confessing deeds. Um, he will come back, and he will confess that his previous confession wasn't heartfelt enough, and he felt bad for that, and so he's confessing about his previous confession. There was one very poignant time when Luther was very upset and this is um, sort of the, the worst of the cases, where for six hours he kept von Stoppitz and just kept confessing, at the end of which a very patient and gracious man stepped out of the confessional booth, looked at Luther, and said something along the lines of Luther, you have to go commit a real sin because I can't, we can't keep confessing like this, right? And so sometimes that's phrased in such a way that it's meant to be like, you know, kind of a a weird thing for somebody to say, go commit a real sin and then come back and confess to me. But, but he was just tired because Luther was, was just talking about how he felt about things. It wasn't actually things that he did. He's just, he felt like this isn't perfect, this isn't perfect, this isn't perfect. So um, rather than allowing him to actually go out and commit any of a number of sins, um, he basically says, we need, we, need you to, we need you to actively do other things. We need to get your mind busy on something else. 
And so um, while the monastic life was very tough, he, he had basically in his room, which was an unheated cell, um, there's no other way to describe it. He had a bed, he had a chair, and he had a table. Um, they would oftentimes, not oftentimes, they would always wake up at 2 a.m. to start their monastic rolls. Um, not, not like baking rolls, I'm sure somebody baked, but they would start doing what, whatever they were doing in the, the monastery, which include a lot of learning, a, a lot of um, recital of psalms and things like that. Um, there's no doubt that Luther knew the psalms by heart, uh, very, very quickly. I mean, if you're just doing nothing but reciting the Psalms, um, you're, you're going to start learning those things by heart. So um, all in Latin. And so he's learning these things and, and doing them in Latin. Um, but he's still pained by this. So the monastic life kind of tried to beat these things out of him and it just didn't work. Uh, Luther would look back on that and say, um, when I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fasting, vigils, prayers, and other rigorous works. I earnestly thought or sought to acquire righteousness by my works. Um, and he just, he couldn't do it. But von Stoppitz said, hey, what we'll do is we'll just push you into academic work. You've got a lively mind, let's put it to use. And, and so he pushed him into academic work. Eventually in um, 1512, he's awarded the Doctor of Theology, and he takes over for von Stoppitz uh, as the Dean of Theology at the University of Wittenberg, um, which has just got started like 15 years before, and von Stoppitz was the first of, of the, the heads of that school. Luther then takes over for him. And it's at this time um, that Luther has something else, or it's just before that time that Luther has something else put before him that, again, is going to um, interact with his, his beliefs and really challenge him. And that is that before von Stoppitz, or during the time when von Stoppitz pushed him into um, the academy, he also said, what you really need to do, maybe, maybe going to Rome would be good for you. And you can see the relics and you can, you can visit the papal palaces, and you can see the goodness of, of life in Rome, and maybe that will help increase your faith in the church and, and the, the power of the church to forgive your sins or something like that. Um, so he goes, he does the, uh, um, what's it called, the San, Scala Sancta. Um, so the Scala Sancta, or the, the like, um, sanctified stairs or something like that. I don't know exactly how it's translated, but um, they're a relic that supposedly were the steps that Jesus himself climbed to get to Pilate that he walked up. Um, so if you go there, you are only allowed to scale them on your knees and you're supposed to kiss every step. There's not that many of them. There's like 28. So Luther does this thinking that at the top, he's going to have this sort of mystical experience and he gets to the top and nothing happens. And he, he's like, how am I supposed to know if this had any sort of good effect or not? And so it doesn't help him. It just starts him questioning, like, what is the use of that? He's looking around, and he watches priests do the Mass. And the priests are doing Mass as fast as they possibly can. They are speaking the Latin words like speed talkers, okay? Um, and they're, they're enunciating every word. They've got to enunciate it perfectly, but they have worked very hard, not on being faithful priests, but simply on getting through the thing so that they can do it again and get paid for it. So they get paid every time they do it. And so he, he looks at this and he's like, there are things that are not good here. Um, and so he comes back from Rome, uh, almost more put out by the church. Um, he finally um, focuses on his academic work uh, when he returns. In this time, he's writing commentaries on Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, or Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. He finishes two on the book of Psalms. Um, 
and uh, is generally just kind of got his head down. The, the work on Romans, uh, as we will see, is kind of the turning point in justification. But before that happens, indulgences are being sold. Okay, so indulgences are quite clearly the thing that, that are going to kick off the difficulty that he's going to have with the Roman Catholic Church. Um, anybody want to say what indulgences are? Every time a, um, there's a coin in the coffer rings, yeah. Yeah, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, right? So, so explain what that means, though. To be freed, right. And so the idea is that you are, um, and this is, this is the crux of what it comes down to, um, I'll read something from Tetzel, who is the guy who is the famous man who is pronouncing these things, um, which isn't that, but he used that rhyme as well. Uh, the idea is that the Pope has the authority to spring people out of purgatory, and that if you give him money, Tetzel is authorized by the Pope to speak to you and to, through the Pope's power, he's like a conduit for the Pope, to free your dead relative from purgatory. Okay, um, so this is what Tetzel was saying. The reason why they're doing this is again St. Peter's Basilica, which is probably one of the most fabulous buildings ever built by humankind. Um, although, for all of the wrong reasons, it is the Babel of our day. Um, nevertheless, uh, it was started in 1506. They needed to bankroll the thing. They were going to bankroll it from a number of different perspectives. One of those was by selling indulgences to German peasants. Okay, so um, Luther looked at this and he said, why is, it that, why is it that God favors rich people? Because rich people can afford to get all their relatives out. Poor people can't afford to get anybody out. And so all of this struck him as, as bad. All of it struck him as, as, a, um, as a weight on the peasant's that, that should not be there. Uh, von Stop, or not von Stop, excuse me, Tetzel was going around in Germany and saying this, Notice the, the, the biblical reasoning here. Uh, don't you hear the voices of your dead parents and other relatives crying out? Have mercy on us, for we suffer great punishment and pain. From this, you could release us with a few alms. We have created you, fed you, cared for you, left you our temporal goods. Why do you treat us so cruelly and leave us to suffer in the flames when it takes only a little to save us? I mean... That's rough, right? And, and especially rough because they would have believed not that, like, grannies in heaven, at best, grannies in purgatory. And if you've never read the divine, uh, it's not the divine comedy, the divine comedy is one of it, but purgatorio, but it's, what is it called? It's not divine comedy. Dante's famous work, Inferno, right? Well, Inferno is part of it. Divine Comedy is part of it. I can't remember the whole. The whole thing's not Inferno, but Purgatory is part of it. If you read Purgatory, he makes Purgatory sound like what you think hell sounds like, right? Purgatory is not. So when Tetzel says like they're in flames, like they literally thought that these people were having like their sin burned off of them. Okay, and so that that's not an easy thing to do for people that you love to turn that down. And so people were paying a huge amount of money to get their relatives freed. Um, 
It's during this time that Luther posts the 95 Theses. So in 1517, uh, he posts the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door. That was not, like, if you, if you listen to certain, especially Protestant historians, it, it makes it sound like the hammer strokes that drove the nail into the 95 Theses, like, rang throughout the world. They barely made a sound, okay? Like, no one cared. No one cared about the 95 Theses. They were written in Latin, which the vast majority of people couldn't understand. And they were posted on the church door, not because he had a problem with the church, but because that was basically, everything else was stone. You couldn't post things elsewhere that were public. And so you would post it on the church door because it was basically the church bulletin board at the time. It was purely academic. All he wanted to do was to have other professors come and they were gonna talk about these things. And if you read through the 95 Theses, um, the 95 Theses were not incredibly like anti-church or anti-papal. Luther wasn't against the Pope at this time. What Luther was going to argue in the 95 Theses was this. The Pope can indeed show satisfaction for penalty, but only on matters of temporal use. Once someone dies, the Pope is of no help to him. Okay? So Luther's basic intention is the Pope is still the Pope. And when the church has imposed a penalty on you, the Pope is free to forgive that penalty at any point in time, regardless of what it is. He has every temporal authority that he needs to to be able to forgive those sins. But once you die, the Pope is no longer of help to you. And so these people are doing horrible and wretched things. Um, and so he's very like open to the Pope's authority, open to the... the, um, the um, it's just not, he's not anti-Pope at this point in time. Um, he does get spicy, um, as you would understand. So if you read through them, he starts out like pretty, pretty congenial, pretty academic. But by the time you get around to, to Theses 80 and then 85, and he, you start to hear Luther, he, you can see him just writing and getting a little bit more upset with like every Theses he writes. Um, so he, he talks about these people who are, um, proclaiming these things. Um, and he, he's basically saying, listen, you need to be contrite. You can't just expect that you can ask God for forgiveness or pay something for forgiveness without actually being sorry and sad for your sin. It doesn't work that way. So if you're just putting money into something and thinking God's going to forgive you, man, God doesn't forgive you for that. It's, there's got to be contriteness. Uh, he'll go on to say that um, Christians are to be taught that he who sees a man in need and passes him by and gives his money for pardons purchases not the indulgences of the Pope, <clears throat> but the indignation of God. Um, Christians are to be taught that if the Pope knew the exactions of the pardon preacher, you'll notice he is, he is thinking or at least hoping that the Pope knows nothing about what's going on, which is as far from the truth as can be. The Pope is the one kind of behind all of this. But nevertheless, Christians are to be taught that if the Pope knew the exactions of the pardoned preachers, he would rather that St. Peter's Church should go to ashes than that it should be built up with the skin, flesh, and bones of a sheep. So rhetoric is coming into play, and he's, he's starting to get more fed up as he goes through. In the end, he says, uh, number 81, he's going to then quote a whole bunch of things that he hears lay people saying. <clears throat> which I doubt he heard any lay people say. I think that he's just writing it from the perspective of a lay person so that he doesn't get in quite as much trouble. Um, 
but nevertheless, he says this in, in Theses 81. This is unbridled preaching of this unbridled preaching of pardons makes it no easy matter, even for learned men, to rescue the reverence due to the Pope from slander or even from the shrewd questionings of the laity. So he's basically saying, these practices make people hate the Pope. Um, at the very least, what he means is, these practices make me hate the Pope. And so all this is meant to do is to sit down and to have people come and, and debate academically, the truth of these things, debating what the, the Pope's authority is as an academic exercise. That's it. Um, two things happen that will keep this from occurring. First, um, one, in January, students are going to get a hold of it, and nothing really has come of this at all. It's, it's known only by a handful of people, and it's not making like, it, it's not causing any waves at all. Students are going to get a hold of this. They're going to read it, and they're going to translate it. And then they're going to get it to a printing press. And they're going to translate it into German. Printing press is going to print out as many copies as it possibly can. And in two months' time, so by March of 1518, there isn't a, a city or a county in Germany and all of the German provinces that haven't had a copy of and read the 95 Theses. And so by that time, the cat has now flown out of the bag, and it's no longer just a, a slight academic issue that's being, being uttered. Now it is an issue for all of the people, because now Germans are reading this, and they're starting to think about what's going on, and they're starting to ask the same questions that Luther was asking. Does the Pope even have the right to do this? And now people are then being angered because they're thinking, if the Pope doesn't have the right to do this, then what did I just spend my, my savings on? Is if grandma's still in purgatory, I'm a little upset, right? And so by this time, it, it's too late. There's, there's no pulling Luther back in. Um, we'll get to the things that are going to happen to Luther after that um, next week. We can't finish it up this week. Um, but this is where he's going to start getting in trouble with the Pope. Um, there's a couple of diets. Diets are, are simply... Um, they're not church-related issues, although you'll see the mixing of church and state here. They're basically imperial issues the Holy Roman Empire calls diets to discuss matters that are important to the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, he's going to have a couple of diets that he's going to have to go on. Um, one is Augsburg and one is Worms. Worms is the most important one. Um, at Worms, uh, just as a brief introduction, because I want to give you some homework to think about before we come back next week. At Worms, he has all of his writings laid out on the table, including the 95 Theses and his commentaries and some other ones, including on the Babylonian captivity of the church um, to the Christian nobility of the German provinces and the freedom of the Christian and things like that. So he, he's got all of them laid out. And, and Eck, Johann Eck, who's the gentleman in charge of this at the time, says, I have two questions for you and only two questions. I'm not here to debate you. I'm not here to talk to you about stuff. Two questions. One, are these your writings? Two, do you recant? So Luther, hymns and haws. And the first question is really easy. He says, well, unless you have inserted something odious into them as an enemy might, these are my writings. The secondly, do I recant? Luther says, give me time. He gives him time. He comes back and he says, listen, we'll read what he actually says. But he comes back and says, listen, I can't recant because I don't, unless you can prove to me from Scripture that what I'm saying is wrong, I've got no reason to recant. And so what Luther is doing there is full out saying, 
Scripture is my authority. And he says, you can look in history and you can see where popes have contradicted popes. And you can see where the councils have contradicted councils. So they can't be trusted. The only thing that we can trust is Scripture. Okay? Now, Eck, uh, you'll find that there were a number of people involved in this who, who Luther was, um, was going to be able to best. Eck is a pretty smart cookie. He's not... He's, he's not going to roll over. And this is his response. And what I want to ask you is, where is Eck wrong? We're not going to answer it this time, but I want you to go home and, and think about this quote from Eck um, and what he says here and, and answer the question, where is he wrong? So Luther's made the statement, I don't believe in the, the Pope's having authority, only Scripture. I will recant if you show me from Scripture where I'm wrong. Eck says this, Martin, um, there is no one of the heresies which have torn the bosom of the church which has not derived its origin from the various interpretation of the scriptures. The Bible itself is the arsenal whence each innovator has drawn his deceptive arguments. It was with biblical texts that Pelagius and Arius maintained their doctrines. Arius, for instance, found the negation of the eternity of the word, an eternity which you admit in this verse of the New Testament. So he's, he's throwing him a bone there, saying, at least you believe in, in the Trinity, right? So he's throwing him a bone, but he's saying, nevertheless, which you admit in this verse of the New Testament, Joseph knew not his wife till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he said in the same way that you say that this passage enchained him. In other words, he says, I'm bound by the word of God. Just like Luther, you say you're bound by the word of God. That's what Arius said. And Arius was bound by Joseph knew not his wife till she had brought forth her firstborn son as a way of saying, there was a time when the sun was not. Okay? So Eck is saying, you want to rely on Scripture? They relied on Scripture. They were wrong, and they're heretics. So he goes on to say, when the fathers of the Council of Constance condemned this proposition of Jan Hus, which, who we've heard about a couple weeks ago, the church of Jesus Christ is only the community of the elect, they condemned an error, for the church, like a good mother, embraces within her arms all who bear the name of Christian and who are called to enjoy the celestial beatitude. In other words, Huss is wrong because we need to have an accurate interpretation of Scripture. Without an accurate interpretation of Scripture, we get heresy. Right? So if you want to rely on Scripture alone, and you think that you can go to Scripture alone, you have to show to us why it is that you're different than all the other heretics that have come before you. And, and his argument is really clear, grounded in history, grounded in reason, and that basically says, how are you different? If we don't control interpretation, how do we know what's true at all? Because every heretic uses scripture, which is, by the way, not something that Eck has said, I've said it too. I said it all the time when we talked about those heresies. They know scripture really well. They use scripture really well. How, do, how would you answer that? That's, that's kind of the, the thing I want to leave you with. How would you answer that? How do you answer that? Because that is not an argument that Eck made then. That is an argument that every Roman Catholic would put before you, not everyone. A lot of them have no, no idea what's going on. But the ones who do know what's going on, they would put that same thing before you today. You, you look around at the Protestant church. You guys are crazy, Right? You've got Pentecostals, you've got super fundamentalism, you've got things all over the place, you've got no one controlling doctrine. If you can't control the interpretation of scriptures, how do you control heresy? 
So that's your homework. We don't need answers right now. Um, you can talk to me about it if you have an answer. Um, I've been, I have a, a distinct advantage. I've been thinking about it all week. So uh, you, Luther, by the way, did not answer that in, in this particular diet of worms. He never got around to answering it. All he said was, uh, it proved to me from scripture. He never got around to saying anything else besides that, basically. Um, so how would you answer Eck in that? So um, other than asking me what my solution is to that, which I'm not going to do today, I don't know why I looked at you, but brother, I'm telling you, if you ask me that question, I'm not going to answer. Any, any quick questions about the first part of Luther's life? You know, um, no, and that's part of the issue. And that's probably why Eck wanted to avoid it altogether because purgatory is really hard to, to find a foothold in Scripture at all. So you, you have to start with some assumptions and then you've got a couple of loose texts and then you, you pull from those some very dubious conclusions and voila, you, you can get purgatory from it. Um, the idea really stems from the theology of justification and sanctification that they had. That is, to be justified, justification and sanctification were the same in the end. So you weren't justified until you were just. So that was what Aquinas said. So justification is the movement towards justice. So you're not fully justified until you're fully sanctified. Well, people die without being sanctified. Now, they can, they can be forgiven for their sin, but they're not sanctified yet. And so what purgatory does is purgatory puts them kind of in a crucible, and it's taking, it's taking imagery from, from Scripture of the refiner's fire and stuff like that in order to make them fully able to stand, just, to stand justified before um, God. And so it's, it's, this, it, it's a natural flow from justification being hooked to sanctification and saying you can't be justified unless you're fully sanctified. Uh, no, you could be a really, really good person and skip over purgatory, which is what the saints did, right? So the saints showed themselves to be holy enough to be able to leapfrog right over purgatory and go straight in because they had accrued, not only had they accrued enough merit to go directly to heaven, but they accrued extra merit that you can then pull from. So it's basically, the idea is that Jesus's merit was so well used by them that it accrued interest like the good steward, like the good servants, right? Like, I, here's, your, here's your talent back and 10 more. That's what they did. So they accrued extra merit, which is why the people prayed to them, right? So you can pray to them and you can get extra merit. Not, you, so understand me in context. That's what Catholics say. I'm not telling you you can do that. Yeah. Nope. I, I mean, they, they, some of them might have, but that wasn't from Augustine. Yeah. yeah. That's a good question, and I don't know. You can? For a dead relative? Yeah. For purgatory? Do, do you get to, like, put your logo on the jersey? Like... Well, I mean, we'll take donations here, but it's not going to get you out of purgatory, so... All right, uh, our kids are here. Hello, children. We were late. We are talking about Martin Luther, okay? We're going to pray real quick, and then we'll come and get you.
Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for Luther. Um, thank you for our time being able to think through these things. I pray that it will be beneficial to you, uh, your church, and to us. Um, may your name be blessed always as we have total and complete forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.